Sholem Aleichem, welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Kirsten Vermeglish. Kirsten is an associate professor of history and Jewish studies at Michigan State University. She's the author of American Dreams and Nazi Nightmares and co-editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique and author of the recently published A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So great to have you here, and what an interesting read. Um, I'm very eager to speak with you about this. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess the first question I have is what led you to write um, or led you to the topic and then ultimately to write the book? Um, So, yeah, that's a good question, Um, and people always ask me this, and usually my kind of glib answer is when you have a name like Kirsten Vermeglish, of course you think about name changing, (laughs) Um, and that's partially true. I do think that having sort of a a weird, long, funny name that, you know, people don't know how to spell or pronounce sort of makes me very interested in names. I mean, I never... I never found my word boring, so I do think I'm, I'm attuned and alive to, to the power and the, the interest of names. But I also, I mean, my interest is um, my interest has always been in secular Jews and Jews not affiliated with the Jewish community um, necessarily, um, and so and, and boundaries of Jewishness, how people define, decide who's Jewish and who's not. And so looking at name changing seemed like it would be a great place to go look for Jews maybe at the margins, maybe trying to sort of redefine themselves. Um, uh, and, and to be honest with you, also, I was trained as an American historian. I didn't know I was going to find so many Jews. Um, so that was one of the surprises of my research. I, I have to say that it's so interesting that the book does surface a lot of these issues, which... You know, you sort of, in some ways, have lived through some of them, um, but you didn't think of them in the context of the name change. And as somebody whose family name was changed, New Man, um, oh. <laughs> pretty obvious, yeah. I, you know, I always thought that this was the common practice, you know, when you came through Ellis Island and other entry points, there was a language barrier, the person didn't understand the question, it was hard to spell, all those sort of standard issue questions. But your book reveals that there's a lot of complexity to the reason that many of us have names that have been changed, uh, you know, both for assimilation, professional reasons. I wonder if you can talk about what, for me, was a lesser-known backstory. Sure. Well, so it was interesting. I mean, I think that so many people have the story. I mean, I don't, I don't have that story of the name changing at Ellis Island, but, you know, since I started doing this work, I've become so aware of that as, as a really powerful story that so many people have. And, and I think it certainly is kind of in the backdrop, you know, of our, our understandings of immigration. And it was interesting to me when I started doing this that actually a number of historians came to me and said, so you're going to disprove the Ellis Island myth, right? Um, for, for genealogists and people who are actual immigration historians, they have argued for quite some time, actually, that that probably most names weren't changed to Ellis Island. And I did actually go initially to Ellis Island to kind of look through that and see if there might be sort of anything to it. They didn't have a lot of records, and they, there was, you know, it, it's hard to prove a negative, but there was certainly not very much evidence that this was something that was happening, certainly on a mass scale. Um, it, it, you know, and this is not to say that immigrants didn't change their names in ways that I don't look at in my book. I mean, I do think that a lot of immigrants changed their names. I mean, one of the 
most interesting and compelling pieces of evidence that I think I do have that suggests that Ellis Island officials didn't officially change people's names is that, you know, in America, people can pretty much change their name to whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't even have to do so officially, and it can still legally be their name. So even if an Ellis Island official changed your name, immigrants were living in neighborhoods where they knew they could just change their name back if they wanted to. Um, so I think that, um, you know, I think that there's this, this sense that Ellis Island has become this kind of um, this kind of cultural image and, and myth, and it, it, it plays a super importance in the ways that people understand their story. And I hate to mess up people's stories because I know sometimes they heard it from their grandparents, and, and I know from talking with people that sometimes they're very frustrated by it. Um, there's really not very much evidence of it. Um, and so I was really excited to find evidence, which for historians is the really important part, to find evidence of so many name changes. And they weren't name changes of immigrants, which is not something that I think I expected um, or that I think anybody really expects. Um, and to me, it's not so much that immigrants didn't change their names. There were plenty of ways and moments when immigrants did change their names. But what's really interesting is that so many people who were native-born Americans were changing their names. Yeah, th these backstories were fascinating to read. Um, and I wonder, again, if you could talk a little bit about what drove some of those decisions, um, which I know you tease out, you don't tease out, you illustrate in the book. Um, you know, it could be in response to an application, which was sort of a veiled way of determining if you were Jewish or yeah. there were quotas, um, et cetera. Yeah. Can you cite a couple of these? Instances? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, mostly in the petition. So I, I looked at the New York City um, uh, civil courts name change petitions, and there are tons, I mean, they're, they're disproportionately and overwhelmingly Jewish. And in so many of these petitions, they don't say they're facing anti-Semitism. They say things like, you know, um, I mean, some of it's all, a lot of it is legal boilerplate, but it will be things like, oh, my name was too difficult to pronounce and spell. But for a lot of them, actually, especially in the 1920s and 30s, when this really, I call it a phenomenon, when it, when it begins to develop, um, you see people saying, I couldn't get a job. You know, I went looking and looking and looking, and I couldn't find a job. And then I changed my name to Appleton, or I changed my name to Saris, or something smaller, or whatever, and easier to pronounce. And, uh, and I got the job, so now I want to make this name change an official name change. Um, this happens over and over again. Um, it becomes... I think, to me, pretty clear that Jews are disproportionately represented because Jews are looking for jobs where they have to submit application forms and their names are on those application forms and they are being surveilled. They are being watched to see if they are Jewish. Employers and schools have decided they don't want Jews or they want to limit severely the numbers of Jews they take in. And so Jews are trying to figure out a way that they can, I don't want to say game the system, but they want to find a way that they can get what they want in a system that's really stacked against them. Um, and so, I, you know, Jews are, you know, show, show up in the system, you know, double the rates, way out of proportion to their existence in, the, in, the, in New York City, despite the fact that New York City has tons and tons of Jews. Um, Jews are still showing up in the petitions um, at rates double their their um, actually six times their I have to get the numbers right they're they're showing up double the numbers of any other of all other groups put together um, they're they're showing up in such large numbers and it is because 
they can't get jobs and they can't get into school. The arc- I don't know. Did you yeah. want some specific stories? I can uh, tell them. N- no, I mean, I, again, just um, that you you had that information in the book and it was quite um, surprising, alarming. Uh, you know, when I looked at the per- the percentages, it was impressive. And you realized that this was something that was happening. And the other aspect of this, that, that story is that that the arc of this goes well into the 20th century. I mean, I might have thought that it was yeah. the beginning of the 20, 20th century, and yet you see this through many generations. Yeah, no, I was very surprised by that. I think that I would have expected, I mean, number one, the thing that was most obvious to me was that World War II is actually the moment when it the name changing is highest. And a lot of historians have kind of argued that, you know, World War II was actually really good for Jews, you know, and that they were accepted as white troops like all others. And um, and so what's really striking is that more name changes took place during World War II. That was the height of name changing for the entire 20th century. And more name changes took place in 1946 than any other year in the 20th century. And 40% of those changes were either veterans or their wives, or veterans and their wives together, um, which really suggests that people are experiencing anti-Semitism and anxiety and even shame about their names and as, as a signal of their Jewish identity in ways that I don't think we've fully appreciated. And then, yes, it continues. It, it declines um, in the 1950s and 1960s, but Jews are still, I mean, it's, it's still high numbers, and Jews are disproportionately represented until the 1980s in the New York City civil court system, um, which, again, kind of says to me that this is kind of, it's a, it's a it's part of what I argue in the book, is that this becomes kind of a Jewish strategy. It becomes kind of a way of negotiating um, anti-Semitism, uh, an American workforce, um, and an American system that marks them by their name. And fascinating to me again that it goes in reverse now. I mean, we we see such interest here in our educational programs and young um, students who are really interested in Jewish identity, the whole connection with Yiddish and Yiddish literature and culture and how it informs yeah. our understanding of Jewish identity. And to see people now wanting to reclaim the original name is fascinating. Yeah. Well, so I have you found, I'm curious, actually, have you found evidence of people trying to reclaim their former last name? No, I haven't, but you write about it a little bit in the afterword of your book. Um, you know, that, that, I, that some people are seeking out what that name was, and um, you gave one example. Yes. So there's a few. I would say, numerically, I found almost none. I mean, I, Oh, okay. I, 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 yeah. Yeah, so there are a few. I mean, there were a few very prominent actually. So Melanie K. Kantrowitz, I don't know if your listeners would know her, but she's a prominent um, uh, lesbian poet activist. Um, she she actually, her name is K. Slash Kantrowitz. She took back the, the former name along and kept it with her changed name. Um, uh, David David Wallace, uh, David Walczynski, who had the name David Wallace and changed it to Walczynski, Irving Wallace's son. And then I do I do talk about one other uh, another woman um, uh, more recently. And there, there's a few other mm-hmm. examples, um, but for the most part, mo- I mean, I found almost no. I mean, in my petitions, I found tiny percentages, and actually no Jews. I found a couple of Italian petitions, but no Jews um, of people changing their names back. I think that. What I find, and I, I'm curious whether you find it, you know, for people who come into the center, you know, what there is is a lot of first names, 
right? There are people naming practices now. People are very comfortable and, you know, happy to to give their children names that sound Jewish, that mm-hmm. sound, you know, that are Hebrew or that are, um, uh, you know, biblical or that are even Yiddish um, or even just kind of immigranty sounding, you know, like Max or something like that, you know, or Sam, names that were popular in the immigrant generation um, for Jews. But there's very few people who've actually chosen to go back, um, I think. And it, to me, that sort of says, it sort of is an indicator of kind of the lasting stigma of a Jewish name, right? The lasting sort of um, ways that Jewish names can sound funny, and that funny is is anti-Semitism, right? That funny is about sort of finding Jews themselves ridiculous, inappropriate, um, unmannered, uncultured, Um so, you know, or, or they're, they're, they're um, out of place, they don't belong, they're not official sounding, they're not refined sounding. And I find that, you know, it, that stigma still, it's still kind of there. I think nobody really wants to go back to those names because they still, even today, can wind up looking like a burden. If you have it, you don't necessarily change it. But I don't know how many people want to, at least I can say, I, I haven't found a lot of people who've wanted to take those names back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was those the couple of examples that you gave that surpri- yeah sort of surprised me that people were. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is that that an avenue to finding out what your name was might be to look for petitions, which is something that had never crossed my sort of radar. As as one in you know personally, as I try to figure out what was our name before it was changed, because we have no idea. Um, I mean, if you know when, I mean, sometimes finding them can be a needle in a haystack. Sometimes I will talk at audiences and people will ask me questions about tracking down ancestors. And I have to admit, that's my mom. My mom is really good at doing our genealogy and I don't, I'm not very good at it. But it is true that name change petitions, I mean, they're in, you know, county courthouses all over the country. Um, and it was pretty easy to change your name. It, you know, even if you were going to do it officially, it wasn't hard. So it, is, it probably would be worth looking mm-hmm. at if you know where your family was and roughly when they changed it. And can we, or can you speak a little bit about the idea of Jewish identity that's attached to this, that, that the reasons for making the name changes had to do more with as we say in the current vernacular, sort of public facing, and yet it didn't. It wasn't uh, because these individuals didn't have strong Jewish identity, um, and yeah. they still had a Jew, uh, ties to a Jewish community. Some of them were observant, etc. Uh, and so, how does how does that kind of play out? Uh, yeah, no, that was one of the most interesting things that I came upon, and. I mean, I, I was particularly interested in it because, I, I you know, there, there was so much, and I think there still is a lot of communal disapproval of name-changing, right? It's seen as somehow a betrayal or, a, um, a, you know, certainly a blurring of the lines of, you know, who's Jewish and who's not. And, and people in the 1940s, I mean, I find... Um, you know, a, a lot of evidence of um, communal disapproval of people who've changed their names, um, uh, a sense that they have indeed betrayed the community. But what's interesting is that there is so much evidence that I think people at the time, as well as historians looking back later, have really overlooked. Um, so one of my favorite 
pieces of evidence is um, that there was an article that a lot of historians, nobody's really written on name changing, but when people mention it in passing, they, they mention this article written by J. Alvin Kugelmass, um, a journalist in commentary, um, I believe in the late 1940s or early 1950s. And he goes and interviews 25, 25 people who've changed their names. Um, and he says, you know, in no, in no instance, when he talks to all these people, in no instance did I get even the inkling that they sought to leave the Jewish community or they sought to abandon Jewishness, um, which to me is really fascinating because that lets you know that's what he assumes, right? He goes mm-hmm. in assuming that's what he's going to see. Um, but instead, he finds 25 people, all of whom want to sit and talk to him on the phone about how they are members of their synagogue and they're presidents of their synagogue and they're still a part of the Jewish community. And like this, like it's really interesting to me that this article has been out there for like since the 1940s, 1950s, but nobody's, there's still this persistent image of name changers as people who were clearly leaving the community. And I still get that even sometimes when I speak in public, people will will question me. They'll say, no, but that's really, that's not, they didn't stick around as Jews. And, you know, there were some people who did leave the Jewish community. There were some people who married non-Jews or you know, felt that being Jewish was too parochial and embarrassing, and they were interested in, you know, sort of remaking themselves into new people. But to a large extent, it's not what you see. You know, you see people who, right, and just the way you say sort of public-facing, people who thought that these names would help them better, particularly as job opportunities, you know, either are being closed to them as Jews or as they're beginning to open by the 1950s, right? They, they finally have a chance to be working in a non-Jewish world. So these names are, they work for them. They help them to sort of get these jobs and then engage in these worlds. But it doesn't mean they don't want to still be Jewish. It doesn't, it doesn't, the, you know, this is not, it's, it's different from African-American passing. I mean, the comparison to African-American passing is, is, a, is an instrumental one here. You know, the country, our country didn't require Jews to abandon everything and live a lie in order to be able to erase their names, right? Mm-hmm. They made it so that Jews would be, they actually encouraged name changing. It's, it's easy. Um, it, it doesn't come with any additional baggage. Um, and it allows Jews to kind of, you know, engage in a non-Jewish world, but still keep a lot of their connections to the Jewish world. Was there a particular aha moment while you were researching the book? Oh, my gosh. There were so many, actually. Um I mean, I think that, you know, so one of my strongest arguments that I think I made very early on was simply, like, looking at all of these petitions and seeing how many of them were um, were submitted by family members together, which I think also just goes completely against our stereotypes and our expectations of what name-changing is. You know, we sort of imagine that it's, you know, single man, you know, an immigrant, you know, or, you know, businessman, you know, trying to make his way in the world and chooses a better name to, you know, or chooses a different name to be able to succeed. Um, And it was so striking that most of these petitions were joint petitions, Um, brothers, sisters, husbands and wives, parents and children. I mean, you could have upwards of eight, nine, ten people on one petition. And I think sometimes that's because it's cheaper, but I think it also allows us to see how much this was not just individuals escaping a community, but that it was actually 
families doing this together as part of a community. Um, so that was that was early, early on when I first started looking at petitions. You know, when you're when you're first doing research, you kind of you're just kind of trying to get a handle on what you're seeing and is there anything that is interesting. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is kind of crazy and not at all what I expected. There were so many surprises in the book, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before I let you go, can you speak to how you feel it shapes understanding of the Jewish experience? Yeah, sure, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that one of the key ways that I think we're now beginning to really reconsider in our contemporary moment, but I think it really forces us to deal with anti-Semitism in a way that... American Jewish historians and I think American Jews um, have have not done. You know, I think uh, there's been a sense that anti-Semitism was minor, it was not official, uh, it wasn't legally inscribed, um, and so therefore it wasn't significant. You know, people went on ahead and they got the jobs that they got and it really didn't matter very much. Um, and I think that... Um, and there's there's a whole reckoning now with anti-Semitism, given the world that we're living in. Um, but I think that one thing that, that thinking about name-changing differently does is absolutely, I think, require us to think more about the obstacles and the struggles that Jews face um, in the United States, and that it wasn't some kind of, you know, sort of easy, you know, you know, upward mobile, upwardly mobile, you know, journey, that it actually was faced with a lot of struggle and a lot of tension, and a lot of heartache and heartbreak, um, individual, familial, and communal, right? That people really, really struggled um, and sacrificed um, uh, their names, their identities, connections to the community, because there certainly are people not changing their names, very upset about all these name changers. So it's really creating communal um, un- unrest and unease. Um, and I think that there's just so much more than just kind of this easy path to upward mobility that, and, and, and a, real, a real grappling with anti-Semitism that I think that, this, that, that my work offers for understanding the Jewish experience. Well, thank you for writing the book. It does prompt a lot of understanding, discussion, and again, there's some, as you say, current relevance to it, uh, and also it's a way to look back several generations and really explore how each of our generations connects with Jewish identity and some of the challenges and how a little thing like a name can make quite a difference. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. And again, the book is A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. And are you currently working on anything else? I am right now. I'm actually working on um, uh, Jews, uh, academic Jews, who travel to universities like Michigan State University or small colleges in the Midwest and the South after World War II um, and find and create really different Jewish communities from the ones they were accustomed to. Wow. Very interesting. And uh, one more thing I will add is we're looking forward. You are coming to the Springfield JCC on December 10th for an author talk, which will be great. We're looking forward. We're sponsoring that with the Springfield JCC here in Massachusetts. So look forward to seeing you there. And thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was okay. a pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. 
To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Thank you.